<laughs> my friend Ben Bullard on staff was like, you know, there's a connection with Pink Floyd, that's their song, and the pig. And I'm like, dude, I don't, Pink Floyd was like the 70s, man. I... <laughs> Just saying. I don't know. Anyway, hey, I'm really glad you're here. A uh, couple things real quick. Um, for those of you on Facebook, you may have seen this already, but um, God is ruining me this week. Like, he is literally destroying me this week. And um, I want to give partial credit uh, to David Platt. Man, I listened to a sermon by him that just wrecked me. And uh, so there are pieces of this he gets credit for, but I'm not going to stop give credit to him at every stop. So I'm just doing it up front. And uh, secondly, I just want to say that uh, I can't, every time I work on this sermon, I'd start crying. And so then one night, uh, my wife and I were talking about some stuff, and I was like, i gotta, I got to tell you about this thing. God's doing my heart. And I started telling her, and uh, I just started crying. And so then Saturday, got together with the elders. We had a meeting. We were planning some things, and uh, I did the devotion for the thing, and it was on some of this, and I just started crying. And the, in the first service, the first venue this morning, I couldn't stop crying. I'm, so I just want to warn you. Like, this is ruining me. It is ruining me. And um, if you're visiting today, you're going to be tempted because you've never been here. You're going to think, this guy's just a fake. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say except for the go watch, like, the last 25 sermons. You actually find one or two of those over the summer where I also cried. But I'm telling you, it's not me. <laughs> um, it's not me. Uh, God is ruining me with this. So... And the other thing is, I've got a whole bunch of scriptures, a whole bunch of scriptures I want to walk through. We're going to go a little long today. I apologize for that. Um, Not really, but I also need a lot of grace because uh, I know exactly what I want to say biblically. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to illustrate it in every service, so um, a little grace today if I'm a little random. Uh, But I want to start here. So I don't know where you, all of you are in your lives and your walk with God. But um, I grew up in a Christian home, and um, roughly, roughly 13 years old, uh, I made this decision that I was going to live a life my way. I was mad at God for some things. I was going to hold it against God and hold God a judgment for some things in life. So I just told him that. And uh, God led me through that, thankfully. By his mercy, he continued to pursue me and reveal his love to me. And so... Around 16, 17 years old, I came to Christ, and uh, I had a dog, a little miniature schnauzer named Joshua at the time, and, and I'd take him on like walks, but really they were like these conversations with God, and God grew me on these walks. It started at roughly 30 minutes apiece, and they'd go to an hour, and sometimes two hours, like my parents would freak out, like, where did you go? I'm like, oh, I was walking the dog. But I would just go out, and I'd go out late at night, often when my parents were in bed, and I would just pray to God. And I remember this a series of moments, I won't tell you all these stories, some of you have been here a long time with me, you've heard these stories, but there were these critical moments where God was doing something in my heart. He was growing me, he was challenging me, he was encouraging me, and I'll never forget the, this, like these moments, but I was on these walks with my dog and talking to God, and those are spelled backwards the same, I think, and anyway, and I'm talking to God, and I'm going, God, Whatever you want to do in my life, you can do it. I'll follow you. Whatever, whatever you want, whatever you want. And it may not seem like a big deal because, right, somebody's got to lead the church. But that was a big deal. See, and what I'm about to say is, seriously, it's not patting me on the back because I was just, a, a, honestly, a dumb punk kid who didn't know anything. But um, I, I grew up in a home. My dad is a business owner. He's a smart guy. And so I learned some business principles. And there was a business class when I was in high school. And I took that class. And they had the part, as a part of the class, not only did you learn the business world, but you also uh, literally practiced making money, buying into the stocks. It wasn't real money. It, was all, it wasn't like that. But it was all fake. And I made more money in that class than anybody had ever made in that class. 
And uh, the guy, the teacher came to me, he's like, I don't know how you keep doing it. Like, you just keep making the right decisions at every turn. And so, of course, I thought it was all that. And so he told me, he said, hey, I want to send you off to this thing. It's like all the, you know, each school can have one representative. I haven't sent anybody in a couple years. I want to send you to this thing with other, like, young, smart business guys, minds, and get you together at this little conference. So we got together, and uh, they put us in teams, and we created fake products, which is crazy, by the way, because other people are actually creating my product today. I should have, like, got it, you know, all together because I'd be making billions. But anyway... Uh, and so my team did a fantastic job, and I walked away from that. I'm like, I'm all that, okay? I was arrogant and prideful, and I'm being honest. It was not a good thing, but I was all that. So I was convinced I was going to have the perfect life. I was going to make tons of money. I was going to have this, this smoking hot wife, 2.5 kids, you know, the big, huge house with the white picket fence, vacations to Cancun multiple times a year, probably more than one house. I was going to have the perfect life. And that God ruined my life. And I remember those moments. They were critical because I was coming to him. And I'm like, God, here I am, hands open, whatever you want. Whatever you want, I'll go wherever you tell me. And guys, I'm, I do not want a pat on the back. But God did that. I remember uh, I, I told God, God, you can have whatever you want as long as. <laughs> as long as you, you, you don't ever make me a missionary. And as long as you don't ever make me the lead pastor of a church. <laughs> and I don't know what's planned for the other one yet, but I'm just telling you straight up right now, you want to know how to get God to do what you don't want to do? Tell him what you don't want him to do. God, you can have all of me but that. Okay. And you can almost guarantee every time God's going to start a process to get you to that because that's the thing that has your heart, whatever the that is. And guys, I, I did. I left and went four hours away from home to go to Bible college, and then I went from there off to Colorado, 20 hours away from my family and everything I'd ever known, and then God called me here, which was a blessing because it put us a little closer to Ohio, Northeast Ohio, and Middle Kentucky, where my wife's family's from, but still, we don't have any family here, biological family, and um, I've just continued to say to God, whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want, God, it's yours. And he keeps taking me up on it, and I kind of wish he'd stop. <laughs> this isn't a sermon about Matt, but th that leads us to this. So in 1998, I did an internship in southern Indiana with a guy named Dave Milam. And it was a great internship. As many internships go, I learned as much about what I didn't want to do in ministry as I did about what I did want to do. But I'll never forget the day I got down there, loaded up my car. I remember calling my parents, hey, I'm not coming home for summer, you know, this year. And my parents were kind of freaking out, like, why? I'm like, I, I got to go do this internship. I need one for school anyway. And honestly, I just felt like God said go. But that was hard because I was sacrificing going home to my family, my friends, and what I'd always known. This was a step of faith. But I was a little bit excited about it. And so I went down to this church in, in 1998. I'll never forget, I think it was a pizza hut we met at. And it was late at night. It was, at least it was dark out, so it had to be late because it was a summer. And I got in, and I remember getting out of my car, and there was uh, Dave and another volunteer from the church with him. And they met me, and, um, and we go in, and we're eating pizza, and we're just talking. I don't even know. I mean, I'm so wet behind the ears of ministry. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know anything about anything. And I'm just like, man, I can't wait. Let's go storm the gates of hell. Let's do this and blah, blah, blah. And they're, you know, kind of laughing at me, whatever. So we walk outside the pizza hut, and I think that's what it was. And we walk outside, and there's this group of teenagers there. And they're kind of rough looking. They're hanging out because in Evansville, apparently, pizza huts, they hang out. <laughs> and I said, hey, let's go over there and tell them about Jesus. And they're like, no, nah, we're not going over there and tell them about Jesus. Like, come on. 
your youth minister, you're training me to be a youth minister, there's youth. That's what we do, right? No, 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 that's not what we do. We didn't. We walked away. And there was something in my heart that was uncomfortable with that. Something in my heart was like, why? Why didn't I walk over? Why didn't we walk over? Who cares that they had guns or knives? There's three of us. I'm faster than all of you. It's like the old bear concept, right? I don't have to outrun the bear. <laughs> and guys, here's, here's what I've learned over 16 years of ministry. It's really easy to talk about people who don't know Jesus. But it's a whole lot harder to do something for them. It just is. It's easier to look at your family member and your coworker and that person who goes to school with you or sits in the cubicle next to you and you know they don't know Jesus. It's easier to pray for them and leave it at that. It's hard to go. And this week, God ruined me. So in 1998, I'll never forget, I was about halfway through my internship. It was closer towards, I think it was closer towards the end of the day. I was sitting in the hallway. Nobody else was around in the church. And I was with the guy who was mentoring me. And he just started this conversation. Well, because I was young and in Bible college and knew everything, I loved theological debates. I remember him saying, so Matt, let me just ask you a question. So let's say somebody never accepts Jesus. What happens to him? I'm like, well, the Bible's pretty clear on this one. Jesus is the only way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one goes to the Father except through me. And he said, okay, but what if they've never, like, heard? Like, nobody's ever sat down and explained the gospel to them. And I said, well, I don't know, according to Romans chapter 1, you know, uh, there are certain things we can know about God, according to Romans 1. You know, the, the stars tell the glory of God. They tell us a story. That's in Isaiah. So we can look at creation, and we can know certain things about God. So he's, I said, I, I guess we'll be held accountable to what we knew. And he said, but what about, you know, the person in the middle of, like, West Africa, and they've never, ever, 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 ever heard. I mean, like, here in America, most everybody's had an opportunity to hear. Now, you may have failed miserably and not actually told, but they've had the opportunity. It's all around them. What about that person in the middle of nowhere? By the way, studies tell us there are roughly 2 billion people in that category today. Two billion people who are unreached, meaning they don't have a church in their culture. There's no one to tell them. And what all of us do in this moment, right, is we start making a way. Let's be honest. I have done it for years. I don't know how it's going to work. Somehow they're going to have to go through the cross of Christ. But, hey, as Rob Bell said, love wins, right? A good God couldn't possibly send people to hell who never heard, right? That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just. And what we do in those moments, by the way, is we put God on the stand and we start to accuse him. As if it wasn't us who were sinning. As if it wasn't us who were rebelling against him. As if anybody on the face of the earth was truly innocent. Some of you are visiting today, and this message is going to make you really uncomfortable, but I hope it makes you uncomfortable in a way that opens your heart and your mind to the glory of God. Because this message is ruining me. Guys, somewhere, somewhere in the back of my head, somewhere deep down at the bottom of my heart, there's been a little tiny, tiny, tiny sliver, uh, a one billionth of a percent of a hole in my gospel. 
that somehow, somehow I've, uh, I've allowed somehow for there to be some way. It always had to go through Jesus. It couldn't be any other way. There's no other hope. It's not Buddha. It's not Muhammad. And it's nothing else. It's not being good enough. But somehow, somehow God would make a way. But guys, it doesn't add up in Scripture. And I've always known it in my heart, but I've never wanted to stop and think about it because thinking about it means something. My friend looked at me and said, so what about that person out in West, West, West Africa or wherever it is, India? I don't know, I don't know. I guess, I guess they'll be held accountable to what they've known. The best that they knew of God, they'll be held accountable to that. And he said, so then aren't we better off to just not go to them? I mean, because think about it. If you go to them and you tell them about Jesus, now they got a problem. Like, like all of you do as of now. You have a problem. Because now you have to answer the question, what am I going to do with Jesus? And you can say, ah, I, I, nothing. I won't do anything with Jesus. But then you've made a decision that's going to affect you for eternity. And if we don't go, my friend says, so maybe, maybe we're better off not going, right? Because if we don't go, then maybe there's a better hope. But there's a hole in that. Because the Bible never allows for that. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. And that's where I want to start today. I want to show you what the Bible says emphatically. So if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, by the end of today, I'm sorry, you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make. But those of us who are believers, I pray this message encourages you deep into your core in ways you didn't plan on today, but also will not let you sleep at night the way God won't let me sleep this week. So before I get to Romans chapter 1, you can open there, it'll be on the screen, Romans chapter 1. I want to tell you the story of the guy who wrote Romans. The guy who wrote Romans is a guy named Paul, but that wasn't his name originally. His name was Saul. God changed his name. There's a whole cool story behind that I don't have time for now. But if you go read Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, you'll hear the story. But here's the short version. So this guy named Saul, this guy named Saul, is, uh, he hates Christians. He believes in God. He loves God because he's a Jewish man. But he's killing Christians. In Acts chapter 8, he's actually seen overseeing the death of a guy named Stephen, who's a young Christian man in the early church. And they bring literally Stephen's stuff to Saul and lay it at his feet. And in Acts 8 and 9, all of a sudden we see Saul, he's so angry at Christians because he thinks they're ruining the ways of God, he goes and gets some laws passed to go and have all Christians arrested. And so he's on his way to do that, and all of a sudden he's stopped. He's on his way to Damascus, and literally a light shines from heaven, comes down, <coughs> excuse me, blinds him, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Saul is broken because he meets Jesus and he realizes he's been rebelling against God, not working with God all along. And Saul starts to wrestle with a question, one that you need to wrestle with, and it is owning me right now. Why me? Why was I born into a Christian family? Why was I raised in a Christian home and a Christian church? Why me? Why wasn't I born in the middle of nowhere where the gospel isn't? Why wasn't I born in a, in a Hindu, primarily Hindu or primarily Muslim country where my mind has been blinded and darkened by something other than Jesus? Why me? Guys, the only answer I have, and, it's, and it's, uh, it's a mystery too wonderful for me, is that God is merciful to me. 
and he's been merciful to you. But do not, do not be so arrogant as to think that he did it because you were all that. God didn't call Saul because God thought, well, this guy will be sharp. God uses the most unlikely of characters. He does it over and over and over again. David, the adulterer and murderer. Moses, the murderer. Abraham, the worst husband perhaps the world had known. I could go on and on. Noah, the drunkard. And Saul, the murderer and persecutor of Christians. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And he says to Saul, because of my mercy, I have plans for you. But by the way, it's really funny. Go read the story because uh, the Christians don't want to accept Saul. They're like, no, this guy, it's a fake, man. He just wants to arrest us. They're like, no, 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 no. Trust me. I'm doing this. You go to Saul. You tell him. And, and, and again, God says to him to encourage him. And don't, don't worry about it. I've got plans. Saul's going to suffer plenty for me. But thank you. I appreciate that, God. And Saul comes to Jesus and he realizes what Jesus has done in his infinite mercy. And Saul says, open hands, whatever you want, whatever you want, I'm all in, God. And God says, you're all in, huh, Saul? Good, here's what I want. You go and you take the gospel into the ends of the earth, no matter what it costs you. And in one of Paul's writings, again, his name is changed from Saul to Paul, in one of his writings, he actually talks about this. He's been shipwrecked, he's been starving, he's been persecuted, he's been beaten. He literally was stoned, not like with the marijuana, but like with rocks, and left for dead. Because he came and said, okay, God, whatever you want, I'm all in, whatever you want. Your life, your ways, your thing, whatever you want, you can have it. And it's that guy who writes this, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. I'll read it over here. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated alike. So I'm eager to come to you in Rome also to preach the good news. Now stop there. Did you catch that in verse 14? I am obligated. Why does Paul feel obligated? He feels obligated because Paul realizes he was lost and with zero hope. What that means is his life was on a trajectory that was leading him to hell. He knows that. And he was the best of the best of the best. He says it himself. There was no Jew who kept the law better than me, I promise you, Paul says. None. No one you will ever meet was more moral, more good than Paul. And he says, I was condemned to hell. Why? Because we are not saved by what we do. We're saved by who we know. This is great news. If you know. Look at Paul's argument. Romans chapter 1, now look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of this. Good news about Christ. 
It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentiles. Stay there for a second. Realize this, in the, in, in the world there are two people, Jews and Gentiles. That's it. In the biblical world, that's it. We, most of us, are Gentiles. There are some of you who are Jews, you were born and raised as a Jewish person, Jewish descent, Jewish bloodline, and you've come to faith in Jesus. We're all part of one family, but that's it. That's everybody. There's no other person, male, female. We're all in that category, Jew, Gentile, every single one of us. Verse 17, the good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by what? As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. It's through what? Faith. It doesn't come because I'm good. It doesn't come because I tried hard. It comes in one way and in one way only. Faith and faith in what? Faith in the Son of God as the sacrifice for my sin to appease the wrath of God. See, this is the part that's hard for us to understand. God is holy and just. He's never made a wrong decision. He's never made a mistake. He's never, ever been, never, ever will be unfaithful. We are full of wrong choices. We are full of immorality. We're full of deception and lies. There is nothing good in us, and there's a passage, I believe it's a Jeremiah, I can't remember now, but it says, all of our good deeds are nothing but filthy rags to God. And in the Hebrew, the word for filthy rags has to do with menstruation rags, and everybody ought to go, ew, and that's the point. Your best deeds are nothing more than foul to God. And that's true for every person who's ever lived on the face of the planet. Verse 18, though. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Do you get what Paul's saying? And he'll he'll go further into this. He'll he'll develop his argument even further. And we'll look at it in just a moment. He's saying no one anywhere has any excuse because we can look at the stars in the heavens and and the, the heavens declare the glory of God and we can know there are certain things about God. We may not know everything about God, but we know enough about God that it actually condemns us. Because we can know that he is good and we can know he is faithful and we can know that he's on time and we can know certain things about him and yet we don't know how to be right with him. And yet, he'll go on to say, and we'll see this, he says it even deeper through Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. But he says, look, the problem also is not just what we see in creation. The problem is our own consciences, our own hearts. And look, if you're visiting today, you know what I'm saying is true. You look in the mirror, you go to bed at night and you wonder if everybody else knew you, would they love you? your own consciences convict you because though you say you're good and though you believe on your last day on your last breath somehow God will make a way for you because you weren't Hitler but yet you know in your heart your own immorality and unfaithfulness and dishonesty and greed and deception and your conscience convicts you but somehow you believe God will just make a way And Paul's argument is he did make a way, but it wasn't through you. Look at verse uh, 21. Yes, they knew God, 
but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused. And he goes on, if you want to read it for yourself later, I recommend it. He goes on to list the actions and behaviors of these people. He talks about uh, women exchanging natural sexual relations with men for, for unnatural uh, uh, sexual relations with other women and men doing the same thing with other men. And he goes on even further and he says, and they become so overwhelmed and depraved in their bodies. They begin to uh, become greedy and full of malice and anger and all kinds of sinful things. And what he's saying is, and if you read it, it's unbelievable because God sa it says that God handed them over to what they wanted. They they wanted something other than him, so God said, I will honor your choice. You can have what you want. Have at it. And they did. And then he gets into chapter 2, and I think it's a verse 1, and everybody in here needs to grasp this as you're wrestling with what I'm saying today because it's in chapter 2. He says, and before you lay, point a finger at them and judge them, realize you are no better because you're just as guilty. You've done the same things in your own ways. And he says this in Romans chapter 2, Verse 1, for God does not, or 11, sorry, God does not show favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Some of you know all too well what that is. And you've made a way somehow in your heart, like God will just overlook it all. And God doesn't overlook any of it. He's too holy for that. And see, we can't fathom holiness because our best models of holiness are people on earth. They're Billy Grahams and Mother Teresas. And if you just spent a day in their heart and a day in their mind, they'd clearly tell you, they don't have it right. They didn't live perfectly. They got plenty of problems. The problem for all of us is the secret life is ruining us. It's owning us. And God is holding all of us accountable for it. All of us. That's why Paul goes on and he keeps arguing. And he goes into uh, chapter 3 in the early parts and he says, Look, uh, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one has sought God. No one anywhere has sought God. In other words, there's no innocent 80-year-old dude waiting to die in the middle of Africa somewhere, and God's going to give him some free pass in because he didn't seek God. And your sister and your cousin and your neighbor and your spouse who don't know Jesus, you can't just make a, hmm, well, I wonder if God will just let them in because, you know, they really are nice. No, they're not. And you aren't either, and neither am I. I agree with Paul. Man, I'm the chief of sinners. That's why he goes on in Romans 3, 23. I'll just read it to you. He says this, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And if Romans were to leave us there, we would all be desperate, amen? Amen. 
but he doesn't. And there's this turn in the conversation right around verse 21. It is powerful. I want to show it to you. That's why he says verse 21, but now. How's that for a phrase? But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous he did this through christ jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins do you hear what he just said it's perhaps the best news that the world has ever known that god in his undeserved kindness you didn't do anything to earn it you weren't good enough he makes this clear in chapter five when he says while you were yet a sinner while you were rebelling against god he came and gave his life and died for you i believe it's peter who says that before jesus ever formed the world he was already set to be the lamb that would be slain he knew as he was making the world that we live in i'm going to die for you because that's the only way you're going to be right with me one day what had that felt like to the creator felt like redemption. He loves you so much more than you will ever understand. But he doesn't love just you. Look at the rest of what he says here. Verse 25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And the sacrifice shows that God was being fair. When he held back, it did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Meaning there's only one way, Jesus. And this is good news. It's it's great news. I wish I could read all of Romans. I recommend you do it today because here's what we've done with the book of Romans. We've made Romans a theological debate among Christians. And if you know these debates, you understand what I'm talking about. You may not, and you may be new at this, so that's fine. But, you know, Christians love to take up the book of Romans and say, no, 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 no. Paul's saying this about justification by faith. No, no, no. Paul's saying that about justification by faith. And no, no, no. God chose me, or I chose God, or what does this mean for baptism? And we're missing the whole point to the book of Romans. Paul is trying to communicate how great the news is that we are made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ and there's no other way and there's no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. It's found in him and in him alone. And he goes on to make all these points about Abraham and Moses and Adam and he's trying to illustrate it from names and stories in the Bible saying look at this and look at this and look at this. All of them pointing to Jesus. All of them pointing to Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. And then we find ourselves in Romans 5 chapter 1 or chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 and it says therefore since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Keep that up there. Do you see that confidence? 
Now, people want to fight and argue all the time about, uh, well, can a person lose their salvation? Here's my five seconds on that. It's the wrong question. The right question is, am I right with God right now? Is my friend, my spouse right with God right now? If I'm not right with God right now, the question isn't, God, do you still love me? Answer, yes. What do I need to do about it? Fall on my face before him and cry out for his mercy because he is faithful and just and will forgive us when we confess our sins. And if our friends and our loved ones are caught in a sin, our job is not just to say, "Mm, God's grace is good. He'll oversee it. No, he doesn't overlook anything. All sin gets dealt with in the same way. Jesus on a cross, crucified, flesh ripped to pieces, a crown of thorns placed on his head, nails in his arms and his feet. It's that and that alone. And every sin we commit and our loved ones commit and our friends commit, do that to him. They put him there, but he took it to give you confidence so that you can joyfully look forward and say, I know where I am with God. I don't have any doubt in my mind. He loves me and I love him. Amen. And Romans 5 closes out with, you can't out God's grace. And the more you sin, the more God has grace. And then Romans 6, so does that mean we should just go on to sin more? And in in the Greek, it's this emphatic statement. It's meganoito. May it never be is the best translation. That's Paul just grasping. He's just exasperated. Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? Who in their right mind would ever look at Christ on the cross and say, thanks for more grace. I'm going to go do this now. And Paul's exasperated. Oh, dear God, please, no. No. Will he forgive you? Yes. But don't look upon the cross And scorn it as if it means nothing. It means everything. But they get confidence in there. Romans 6. I don't have this on the slide, but he says that there's confidence. Anybody who's been united with Christ in baptism will certainly be united with him in his life because when we go into those waters, we become one with him. The same way he died in a tomb, you're dying in a tomb. And when you come out of that waters, you've left the old you behind. You don't need to do it over and over and over again because God's faithful when you're unfaithful. One baptism, all right? That's what we practice here. Because God is good all the time, even when you're not. And there's confidence in that. But we get to chapter 7 of Romans, and Paul's struggling because he says, I'm a wretched man. Amen? Paul says, I never do the good I want to do. And I always do the bad I don't want to do. And what a wretched man I am if in this flesh I keep doing the thing I don't want to do and I don't do the thing I want to do. He even cries out, oh, what a wretched man. I mean, who's going to save me from this life of flesh that keeps pursuing the things that aren't God? And then he says, but praise be to God for Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then he gets into Romans 8, chapter 1, and in the ultimate pronouncement of the salvation of God, he says this, I love this, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. You can go back to this man, you can get that tattooed on your arm. That right there is your life. I don't stand before God condemned. I stand before God as a saint. I stand before God washed clean, made right, not because I did it right. I stand right before God because he did it right on my behalf. And he doesn't look at me and say, jerk, idiot, moron. He looks at me and says, I love you, but I love you too much to leave you how I found you. And then it goes on in Romans 8 to make this beautiful plea and says, do not worry about what comes your way. 
whether hardship or persecution or calamity, God will never give up. He is always present. In fact, he says it like this in Romans 8, 32 to 39. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? My mother, my husband, my children, no one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or are persecuted, or are hungry, or are destitute, or even in danger, or threatened with death? As our scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. This is Paul saying, look, there's actually passages in the Old Testament that this would happen to us. And it goes on, he says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell could separate us from God's love. The power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is huge. Because what Paul just said is no matter what you go through in life, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what temptations abound, Satan himself can't separate you from God's love. The question isn't whether or not God will ever give up on you. The question is whether or not you will ever give up on God. This is what we call the good news. God is abundantly gracious and merciful, and he is full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and he will not quit on us but that is only good news if you have it. It is condemning news if you do not. Because the book of Romans makes something black and white. It makes something crystal clear. There is no other way to God but through the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and faith in that. None. And you may ask, Matt, why are you telling us all this? Why are you showing us this? This, that, all that, that's just the gospel. That was just the first part of the sermon. Now we're starting the real sermon, okay? I'm just joking. But guys, that's the foundation everything stands on. Here's the question I want us to look at now. Why is Paul writing all of this to the church in Rome? Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 14? I am obligated, obligated to take the message to people who've never heard it. I want to show you how Paul lived that out. So, again, book of Acts, Paul comes to faith, and he's a part of the church in Antioch. He's now a new believer trying to figure out what does it mean to not be a Jewish person, to be a Christian person. Let me show you Paul's first missionary journey. Here you go. Here's Antioch over here. This is where Paul starts, and I don't know if you can see this real well. I'll move my arm in a second. And he comes over here, and he comes up here like this, and whoop, and here's where the arrow goes, and comes back around, back down here, and it goes back to Antioch. You see that there. This is called Paul's first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit comes along and says, Paul, okay, i got a plan for you. You gave me your life. Here's how your life's going to go. You're going to start here. The church in Antioch is going to send you out, and you're going to plant churches. And he does it. Plant 
plants churches, plants churches, stops, plants churches, plants churches, does that, comes all the way back and goes back home. Takes a break for a while. Refreshes. Then it goes out on a second missionary journey. Here's Paul's second missionary journey. Notice where he starts again. Antioch, home, home base. Goes to Tarsus up through Derby, like Iconium, all the way up. Whoop, gets up here. And this is crazy, man. This right here, this story, go read Acts 16 later. Ruin you if you understand it. He gets up here, and he's like, hmm, I don't know where I'm supposed to go, so we're going to try to go to Asia. We're going to try to go to Bithynia, and it says the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him go. We don't even know what that means. Like, what do you mean Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let you? I don't know. Jesus just said no. You're not allowed to go there. Then while chilling out one night, they have a dream, and a person in the dream says, hey, I'm from Macedonia. Come and tell us about Jesus. So they wake up the next day, and Paul and his boys go, hey, I think we need to go to Macedonia. So they come over here, and they plant the church churches of Philippi and Thessalonica, and he comes down here and plants the church in Corinth. That's where we get the books of, you know, Thessalonians and Philippians and Corinthians. And while he's here, he decides to make his way back to Jerusalem, visits Jerusalem, shaves his head, does all kinds of crazy things, and goes back home. And that leads us to Paul's third missionary journey. And Paul's third missionary journey, guess where he starts at again? Antioch. Why? That's his home church. That's where he launches from. That's where he goes out from. And he goes out, but notice this time, Tarsus and Derby and Lystra and Antioch of Pisidia and Philippi and Thessalonica. Hey, these all sound familiar, right? Because on that last map, he planted churches there. And on this map, he's going out to check on them and see how they're doing. There's not a lot of new planting going on. Now, Paul writes a lot of books. He's coaching people. What happens is he leaves these churches and uh, sin creeps in and the heretics creep in and they confuse everybody and now he's correcting everybody's doctrine. And then he comes down here to Corinth and it's from here in Corinth on this trip that he writes the letter to the church in Rome. And then he makes his way back here. But notice he doesn't go back home. You see it? That's a little bit important. I'm going to show you the last map then we'll read some more. I'll show you the next one real quick. Go ahead and go to the next map. My side guy's catching up to me now. Or that was his phone that rang. <laughs> I skipped a couple verses. There's the map. All right, they got it up there. They must not have been in here. Okay. So you'll notice up on this map, this is just a map of the area. Notice on the far right of the map, Antioch over there, Jerusalem down below. You'll notice if you come... Over to your left, you'll see Corinth. It's an island down there. We've been looking at that area, but now look at Rome. See where he's, he's sitting in Corinth. He's telling them, hey, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to come back, and I want to visit you. Why do I want to come and visit you? And he's about to tell them, I'll show this to you in a minute, because I'm ultimately heading to Spain. And let me show this to you. I promise this will all make sense in a second. Not just cool maps, history lesson. Romans chapter 15, verse 19. Paul says, in this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who <clears throat> never been told about him will see, and those who never heard of him will understand. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I've been preaching in these places. But now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome. And after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey." 
But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to all the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia uh, have eagerly taken up offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. So here's the deal with this map. The map is showing us that Paul had an offering from those who were really poor. The church of Philippi begged him. Even though they were poor, we learned this in, in Acts and Philippians, even though they were really poor, uh, they begged God. They begged God, let us give an offering, or begged Paul, let us give an offering to take to the church of Jerusalem. Do you know why they did that? Because they felt obligated to the church of Jerusalem who brought them the gospel that in their hardship they wanted to provide for them. Paul says to the church in Rome, I got to go back to Jerusalem and then I'm going to Spain. And before I go to Spain, I'm going to leave Jerusalem and I'm coming back to you. I'm not going to Antioch. Antioch's paid for all my trips. Antioch's funded all my ministry up to this point. I'm going to come to you. And when I get there, we're going to enjoy some fellowship and we're going to celebrate together. And then I need you to send me. I need you to send me to Spain because they're going to hell. Because they don't know. Guys, here's the part. Here's the part that's ruining me. Here's the part that I can't get past. And I don't know what I'm going to do about it yet. Paul loves lost people a lot more than I do. Look at Romans chapter 9. With Christ as my witness, I speak with other truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. Another Paul is saying, what I'm about to say seems radical, but you could trust it, and God himself will back me up on this. Verse 2, my heart is filled with bitter, bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ if that would save them. What Paul just said, again, follow his argument, I, by God's grace, I have this undeserved privilege of being made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And even though I struggle in the flesh, God says no condemnation. He's good, he's faithful, and nothing will ever separate me from his good and faithful love. But I got a problem because my brothers, my sisters, the people that I love, they're going to hell, and I would be willing, but God says I can. I would give them my salvation. I would literally go to hell for them if they could be saved, but it doesn't work like that. And I find reasons not to tell people about Jesus because it's uncomfortable. Sometimes. Or it's a burden. Or I'm too tired. Or I don't know what they'll think of me. Paul says, I can't go to hell for them. But he lets them beat him and starve him and mock him. And he says, I will lay it all down here because that's the best that I could do. And I wonder sometimes if I love the gospel as much as Paul. keeping me up at night, guys. It's keeping me up at night because there are people who don't know him roughly 20,000 in a four and a half mile radius of our church. Wow. Our missionaries with Care India literally 
literally take the gospel to villages who've never heard his name. I'll never forget hearing this story from P.B. John that they have a hospital that they had built and had some people working on it and this guy in the local area, he came and died and P.B. just sat on the steps and he wept and he wept and he wept and I was hearing this story, I'm like, why is he weeping? I mean, he built a hospital, he did the best he could but P.B. understood the hospital is a bridge. If it could keep him alive just long enough for us to tell them the gospel, if by any chance that they would just come to the hospital we could serve them but they didn't come to the hospital and they died and he knows what's on the other side of their last breath and it was eating at PV and I'm thinking why isn't it eating at me? Why doesn't it bother me more? Why doesn't it make me do more? And this is to guilt trip you. I don't care if you feel guilty but if you feel the burden for the goodness of God to be known to the ends of the earth I hope it does something in you. Something that won't let you leave here the same way you came in. We cannot, we cannot simply take the mercy of God and say, thank you, God, for that mercy, and let me go to lunch, let me go to my family, let me go to my job, and let me keep it to myself. It was never for just you. It was for the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And we always imagine in our minds that God will make some other way, right? He'll send somebody else. Sure, maybe. Maybe one day he'll just write it in the sky. He'll take some clouds and some stars and arrange them perfectly. And, hey, look, there's that message. He just hasn't ever done that. If you read the book of Acts, not once, not once does the glory of Jesus go out except for through men and women taking it. Every time. And history tells us Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome for two reasons. Number one, I'm coming to you and I need you to send me. Number two, he writes out this long description of what he teaches because he might not make it. And if I don't get to Spain, you need to go. You need to go. Now you know everything I teach. You know exactly what I believe and you need to go. And here's the bottom line to all of this. Here's the bottom line to all of this. I think God is calling every single believer in this room to two things, every single believer to two things. Number one, some of you need to go. I don't know what that means for you. You've got to wrestle with God. God's calling some of you to quit your jobs and go to the mission field. He is. And it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be hard. God's calling some even to full-time ministry. I don't even know what that means or where. You maybe need to start a Bible college education right now to get some training, some theological training to figure that out, but he's calling you to do it. And everybody else that he's not calling into that, guess what? He's calling every other person in here to fund it. Every single one. And the only way that's going to happen, the only way the glory of God is ever going to be seen on this earth is for the people of God to say, I'm not going to live for me anymore. Here's open hands, God. Whatever you want, it's yours. My life, yours. Whatever you want, God, I'm all in. I'll follow you. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, I beg you, give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable, This is truly the way to worship him. In other words, what Paul's trying to say is just come in with open hands, God. Whatever you want, I'm all in. I'm not going to live for me anymore. I'm going to live for you. Whatever you want, God. I need to repent of a sin, I'm repenting. You want me to leave, I'll leave. You want me to give, I'll give. I'm going. Tell me what you want me to do, God. And I'm calling on the people of this church to take up Paul's challenge.
Some of you, you're going to have to downsize your house. You're going to have to sell your car. You're going to have to cancel the trip to the Bahamas. You're going to have to live radically. And you're going to do it for the glory of God, not for the pat on the back. You're going to do it for the glory of God so that on the last day, you can stay before him and say, I did everything you asked me to do. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful. You've been responsible with a few things here on earth. Let me put you in charge of many. And it's going to be hard because at every turn you're going to wonder, am I crazy? Is this worth it? Is it working? And especially in those seasons where there's no fruit because there's plenty of those in ministry, you're going to wonder, is my money really doing anything for the glory of God? And you're going to have to put your faith in Jesus Christ to say, you are sovereign and I trust you. And I trust you. Here's how Jesus says it. Luke chapter 12, verse 31. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. Don't be afraid little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven, and the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it, and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will also be. Be dressed for service. And keep your lamps burning as though you are waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and he knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. This is Jesus saying, I will be faithful to you for your faithfulness to me. Guys, I don't know if I've ever been this bold about this subject in my life, but here it is. I'm calling on you to follow God in this. People argue with me all the time about this. Well, God doesn't really expect me to give blah, blah, blah. You know what? That's between you and God. On the last day, you can stand before him and argue with him for whatever you chose to give or whatever you chose not to give. That's between you and him. But here's where I land. I am convinced Absolutely, 100%, and all my heart convinced, God has called us to give 10% of everything he gives us. It's called the tithe. And to give it before taxes, and to give it before retirement, I'm convinced. You can wrestle with God and come up with whatever number you want. That's just where we start. Someday I'd love to tell you the, the goals that my wife and I have, but at this point I feel like I'd be doing it for me to convince you that I'm all in. So we go above and beyond the tithe and we support this church more than that and we support ministries and missionaries and kids who are hungry and friends in need and we do it. And I'm not looking for you to say, hey, great, I trust my pastor. No, I want you to know I came to Jesus with hands open and I'm constantly, this week, I'm struggling because I'm going, God, can I give my kids beans and wieners for a week and get another 100 bucks squeezed out of this budget? Like, could my kid wear the same diaper every day? This is ruining me, and it always does. I hate doing money series because it ruins me every time because I realize the ministry of God doesn't get done without funding. It just doesn't. So I want to show you this real quick, and I just want to be clear. I'm going to ask you to do something next week, and you need to go home and wrestle with God and get mad at him and mad at me and talk to your spouse, and here's the graphic. 
Here's uh, what I would call a generosity ladder. Here's where most of us start. We give occasionally. You know, yeah, the sermon was good this week. Here's a little bit of money. Once God gets con- convicts us, we kind of move up the ladder a little bit and we go to intentional. Okay, I'm not just going to give once in a while. I'll give when I'm there. But as God gets our hearts even more, we climb up even further and we say, you know what, God, I'm going to commit. I'm going to commit. I'm actually going to go into the app. I'm actually going to sign on to the, to the, to the uh, I can't remember the name of it. I don't remember the name of it now. Push pay, whatever it's called. I'm going to sign on and I'm just going to, it's just going to automatically come out. I'm going to bring a check. Whether I'm even sick, I'm going to bring my check in to the church. I'm going to commit to giving at Kingsway. And I'm going to commit to ministries and missionaries beyond that too. And that's called extravagant. And here's my belief. Guys, it's just my belief. You can do what you want. You wrestle with God. You come to the conclusion. You come to, I believe God wants everybody there. Not here, not here, not even here. I believe God wants everybody there. And I think about the widow, Jesus sitting in the sanctuary, and there's rich people coming in, dropping all kinds of money, and this widow walks up, and she drops in her two last coins, and Jesus says she gave more than all of them because she gave everything she had. How does she do that? Because she trusts that God will show up and help provide. Next week, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to actually ask you to pick which one you're going to do. And I don't want you to do it out of guilt or compulsion. And so if you go home today and you feel guilty, I just want you to go ahead and put that away and say, man, it's not for me apparently because my heart's not in it because God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. But Jesus knows what you know and your heart will follow your money. And the glory of God must go to the ends of the earth and God is using us here and there. So I want to close in prayer. Because some of you in this room are hearing the gospel presentation perhaps for the first time in this form. And the reality is there's something God's doing in your heart and you need to respond right now. Because you don't know that Jesus won't come back before next week and you don't know that you'll be alive next week and you need to do it now, now, right now. In fact, when I'm done praying, we're gonna sing and when, I, when we're singing, you need to go to my left. You're right. Underneath this screen right there, be a staff member there. You need to go to them and say, I need Jesus. I don't even know what that means. I just need Jesus. We'll tell you what it means. We'll explain it to you. You may look at your spouse or your friends who came up and say, I didn't plan on this, but I got to go. They're going to say, what about the kids? We'll help you figure out the kids, all right? Just go. The rest of you, you need, to, you need to figure out where you are. You have one hand open for Jesus or two hands open for Jesus? Two hands open means there's nothing I'm holding back from you, God. I'm not keeping anything that you can't have. Two hands open means, God, whatever you want from me, you can have it. And then watch as God makes your life gloriously uncomfortable. And it's awesome. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Father God, would you wreck this room the way you're wrecking me right now? God, I pray that I don't, I'm not allowed to be a hypocrite, Father. I'm not allowed to just preach the glory of Jesus on this earth and in this church. I have to live it. So, God, would you please move in me, move in us. God, I pray for this church to be broken by our sinful, greedy lives, the areas that we've withheld from you, God, that we've not let you touch and get into and mess around with. And, God, I pray for your spirit to speak ever so clearly right now, God. Would you move in us, stir in us a desire to see your kingdom brought to earth here in this place, God, and may it move us into action, not words, action. In Jesus' name.